James chapter 2, and this morning we're just going to be focused on verses 21 through verse 26. But I wanted to read um, the entire chapter of James chapter 2 to kind of again help fill in uh, the context a little bit. So James 2, beginning at verse 1, listen now to the reading of God's holy word. My brethren... Do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one man wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, You stand there, or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the Scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy Mercy triumphs over judgment. What does it profit, my brethren? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? This, uh, thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and made by works and, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Let's seek the Lord's blessing on this, His holy word. Gracious God in heaven, we, we do praise you and thank you for your word and Uh, We thank you, especially as we come this morning to this particular passage, which you have uh, called us and appointed us uh, to consider this day. 
And we just pray that our hearts would be ready to receive the truth that is here, that would be challenged by it, to embrace it, uh, and to um, be instructed that we might be faithful servants and witnesses for your glory and your praise and your honor. And so we ask now, Father, for your blessing upon your holy word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, the message of James, of his letter, is certainly a much-needed message for the church today. The very practical instruction that James has given so far, that is, that we need to be doers of God's Word and not just hearers or just professors uh, of God's Word, saying that we believe... And certainly that this doing involves actually obeying the very commands of Scripture, what James has termed the royal law. This instruction is a much needed antidote to the widespread antinomianism and just rejection of God's law in the life of the Christian that has infected much of the broad evangelical church as well even as the general cultural Christianity we may call Uh, that seems to pervade even our own region of the country. And there's those who who claim to be a Christian, but when you examine the fruits of their lives, you see that their lives are largely indistinguishable from the way in which the world lives. And especially those, so they are the ones who really need to take heed to this message of James uh, to actually be doers of the law, not just saying, I'm a Christian, but to live as a Christian, as a believer in Christ. But even the more theological message that James uh, has begun now to set forth in chapter 2 is is also very essential today in in defending the faith of the true gospel against not only uh, the works-based faith of Roman Catholicism, but also closer to home, the ever-growing influence of the corrupt a federal vision movement and the likes of Doug Wilson and others who, um, that it's, again, has made its way into many Reformed and Presbyterian churches. Now, of course, the irony here is that uh, on this particular point is that when closely examined, really the errors of Roman Catholicism and the errors of the federal vision are very eerily uh, similar And so, for example, it's not uh, surprising then to see those who get swept up in the federal vision eventually making their way into Roman Catholicism. And so understanding James, in the light of the testimony and the witness of the rest of the Scripture then, is extremely critical for us in order to rebuff these errors. And so as we come to our passage today, we're reminded... Again, that James has given the practical argument to make his case. That faith without works is a dead faith. And a dead faith is a useless faith. It's useless uh, to others, it's useless to ourselves, and it's useless even to the Lord Jesus Christ because we're not serving Christ as He's called us to serve Him. A dead faith, then, is really no faith at all. And though James never really fully leaves his emphasis on the practical, he does move in this last part of chapter 2 to this more theological uh, argument and these theological themes. 
And again, as we briefly mentioned last time, it's here that many have considered James to be in conflict with the Apostle Paul. And it's this apparent tension or conflict that seems to invite these corrupt and erroneous views to then take root. And so what we want to attempt to do this morning is we want to consider what James says here about justification, about faith, and about works. And then we want to compare that with what the Apostle Paul says about these as well, especially what Paul says about these in his letter to the Romans, where he fully or most fully expounds on these same issues. Well, in this comparison, hopefully, Lord willing, we'll see that not only are Paul and James in full agreement, but there really is no room for these false and erroneous views that are plaguing the church. And so to do this, we want to first jump to verse 24, which again is is really key to James' argument here, but it's also the very verse which seems to put James in conflict with Paul. And so in verse 24, James says, You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Okay? You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Now I want you to listen closely. Uh, you can even turn there to Romans 3.28 if you want to. Keep a, a figure here in James. This is what Paul says in Romans 3.28. He says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Now I want you to note here that James and Paul use the same three key words. Justified, faith, and works. Or Paul uh, some translation has, you know, uh, New King James has here deeds of the law. And yet it's how they order these three terms that makes it appear as though they're in conflict with one another. James says a person is justified by works and not merely by faith. Paul says a person is justified by faith without any help from works. So how can these then be reconciled? But the first thing that we want to consider is whether James and Paul are using these words, these terms, in the same exact manner. That is, do they actually define them in the same way, or is there some variation in their meaning and understanding, and we get that based that on the particular context of what they're, what they're saying. And so, for example, the word justify We know that the word justify can have different shades of meaning. Now, the most common understanding, especially biblically and and theologically when we talk about justification, is often how the Apostle Paul uh, typically uses it. It's It's a legal declaration which God graciously makes regarding the undeserving sinner. And the Apostle Paul argues that we're justified, that is, we're declared by God to be in a right relationship with Him. And this declaration is made when we believe in Jesus Christ for salvation, when we have that faith. And so our faith, again, which itself, and Paul talks about that in Ephesians, our faith, which is itself a gift of God's grace, 
is the basis upon which God makes this declaration of justification. And so when Paul says that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law, he means that that one-time act of justification. Right? Being declared right in God's sight is based on faith in Christ and what He's done for us and not on any works that we might do in order to earn God's favor. Now, of course, this was the very key principle of uh, the Protestant Reformation uh, you know, over 500 years ago. And the, the point which Martin Luther uh, said, upon which the church stands or falls, is this point that we are justified by faith alone. And of course then, his, uh, the, the Reformation uh, going against the, the Roman Catholic Church at the time. Now, when we think about James, so that's how Paul uses the word justified, and, and especially how he's using it there in Romans 3.28. <clears throat> but if we consider James... Now, James is using the word justified in the same exact way. Well, then, yes, there is certainly a conflict. Because James seems to be adding works to faith as the basis of our being justified. Now, of course, if we back up a moment, we know, and you think about this every time there's an apparent conflict uh, that is in the Scriptures, or when people try to say that, you know, the Scriptures contradict themselves. Well, we know Paul and James, we know and confess and believe that Paul and James can't be in conflict, ultimately, because it's the same Holy Spirit that worked through Paul to write Romans is also the same Holy Spirit that is working through James to write his epistle. And it's the, ultimately then it's the same author, so they cannot be in conflict with, with one another. And so as we consider this, then we know what Paul is thinking when, in Romans 3. Well, then what is James? What is James referring to? Well, he can't be referring to, then, a legal declaration of righteousness by his use of the term justified. So what does he mean, then? Well, again, the word justified can also mean to, to vindicate or to demonstrate to be right and just. In other words, to prove true. And so, for example, it's used this way. Uh, Jesus uses this way, and in Matthew uh, uses the word justified in this way. And in Matthew eleven, verse nineteen, Jesus says, "The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners.' But then he goes on to say, "But wisdom is justified or vindicated by her children." So here, this, in this context, the scribes and the Pharisees were criticizing Jesus because of his association with sinners. But Jesus declares that wisdom and truth, of course, which he personifies, that wisdom and truth will be vindicated or it will be proven true and right by its deeds, by the results of what it's done, and not by the empty, presumptuous words of the Pharisees. And so that there, Jesus is using the word justified to, to demonstrate how it can be used to mean proved true. Another example, Paul may be using justified in this very same way, also in the book of Romans, Romans 2 verse 13. There Paul says, For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, 
but the doers of the law will be justified. Now here we see that that Paul is sounding very similar uh, to what James is saying here in James chapter 2. Paul notes that those who actually do the law, as opposed to simply hearing it, are the ones who are justified. That is, they are vindicated, they are proven as true believers in God's sight. Right? It's not just hearing the word, oh, I'm, I'm a Christian. No, you, you, you prove that, not by your words, by what you say, but you prove that by what you do and how you live. And again, it's not that doing the law secures justification, but it merely shows and demonstrates that one has been justified. And again, what Paul says here in Romans 2 verse 13 is much like what James says back in verse 18, I will show you my faith by my works. And so again, even Paul is using the term justified in a slightly different way than he does uh, in Romans 3. Well, the reformer John Calvin uh, concludes uh, the kind of this whole discussion this way, saying <clears throat> that when Paul says we are justified by faith, he means precisely that we have won a verdict of righteousness in God's sight. And we've won it not because of what we've done, but because of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, James has quite another intention that the man who professes himself to be faithful or who professes himself to be justified should demonstrate the truth of his fidelity or of his faith by his works. And so really then, there is no conflict. Paul and James are using the same word, but they're not quite using it in the same way. And there's variation in the word that allows for this, and it's based on the context. So they're not in conflict. What about the words faith and works uh, that both, again, are using in these passages? Well, let's uh, let's first look at works. James simply says works. Right? But Paul uses deeds or works of the law. And some contend that Paul means here specifically the ceremonial aspects of the law, uh, which primarily would be circumcision. But both Paul and James use typically use the word law, works, deeds of the law, royal law. They use these interchangeably. And so there's really no difference in how they're using these words. Deeds of the law, works, are going to be referring to the same thing. Works are based on doing and fulfilling what God has commanded, especially in His law and the moral law and the Ten Commandments. And certainly what to do these works, even as Jesus commanded, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But the key difference, and we've talked about this before, the key difference is when these works are done. We don't obey God's law and do good works in order to earn God's favor. Our salvation doesn't rest in our works. As we've affirmed before, salvation is by grace through faith alone. And this is the very point that Paul, again, is laboring to make in his letter to the Romans. But James says not merely faith alone, but works are also needed. 
Now, Roman Catholics would then uh, pounce upon uh, James' words here, and they will say that James is here setting forth that our salvation is secured by our faith working together with our works, right? That's the Roman Catholic position is it's faith plus works brings about salvation. But again, not only would this mean James is contradicting Paul, which can't happen because, again, it's the same Holy Spirit inspiring both, But this isn't at all what James is saying here. James isn't looking at securing salvation and justification. No, he's speaking of works that come after our already having faith and been justified. And we've actually seen this throughout his letter because at each time he's not talking to people in the world. He's talking to brothers in Christ. He's talking to believers. They're already saved. He's not doubting their salvation. He's just saying you need to not only profess your faith, but you need to live it out. And so James is not focused on salvation as Paul is focused on salvation. James is focused on this godly living as a result of having been justified and having been saved. And so again... Paul and James both speak of the same kind of works, but they speak of them at different times in relation to our justification. Paul's emphasis is he's looking at works and the relationship to salvation or before salvation. James is looking at works and its relation after salvation. And so it's an important difference to keep in mind. So we looked at justification, we've looked at works. What about faith? Now, it's interesting here that James specifically mentions faith only, or you could even translate it faith alone, and some translations may actually have that. But in context, and again, based on what we've considered already, James uses this differently than either Paul or uh, the emphasis that the Reformers placed upon it. And so consider, for example, verse 14, where James says, What does it profit, my brethren, If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? What kind of faith is James talking about here? It's a faith that stands alone without works. Can a faith without works save or even justify in the declarative sense? James is saying no. And here's why. And it's because of what he says and goes on to say in verse 17. Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Right? James is talking in verse 14. He's talking about a dead faith. Right? Note the connection between faith by itself and faith only. To to James, faith only means a faith that has no works. And so surely a dead faith can't save and it can't justify. In fact, some have argued that this is the key difference between James and Paul and and, and not their usage of the term justified. And this certainly could be, and, and scholars are kind of divided over this. But for a reason I think we'll soon consider, it seems that the variation of the term justified is really the key, and then the variation of faith here is just somewhat somewhat secondary. That again, James is talking about a dead faith. 
a dead faith, like a dead man, can't do anything. Well, James goes on from this to now illustrate what he's arguing by looking at historical examples. And again, what's interesting here, thinking about James, thinking about Paul, is that both James and Paul use the very same example to make their respective points. Right? They both look back to Abraham. In fact, in verse 23, uh, here, uh, James chapter 2, James quotes the very same verse from Genesis 15.6 that Paul quotes in Romans 4 verse 3. Right? Paul says in Romans 4.3, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And then look at what James says in verse 23. And the Scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Now, Again, they're both quoting from Genesis 15.6. And the context of Genesis 15.6 is the establishment of the covenant between God and Abraham. That God graciously called Abraham and promised him that he'd have a son and that from this son Abraham would have descendants as numerous as the stars. Right? And this was the covenant promise God made. And when God made that promise, Abraham believed God. That is, he confessed faith in God. And so God then reckoned that to him as righteousness. That is, at that moment that Abraham believed the promises that God had made to him, that God had declared Abraham just and right in his sight, and he was identified as God's friend. As we can see, this certainly supports Paul's argument for justification by faith alone. In fact, in Romans 4, after Paul quotes from Genesis 15.6, he builds his case using Abraham as a further example. Right? And Paul is, is... Now, we have to remember just a little bit of context for Romans. Uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, he's dealing with a congregation that's kind of a mix of, of Jew and Gentile believers... And the Jews were prone to think that they had an advantage over the Gentiles because they were the actual physical descendants of Abraham and they had received the covenant sign of circumcision to prove it. In fact, there was pressure then being placed upon the Gentile believers to undergo this ritual as a basis for their faith in Christ. And so basically they were essentially being told that they needed to become Jews before they could become Christians. Right? That's the, the great error of the Judaizers that we see uh, the apostles dealing with throughout uh, the New Testament. And this was a problem in Rome as well, in the church at Rome, as Paul is writing these things. And, but Paul was arguing... And he goes on to argue here in in, uh, Romans 4 that circumcision provides no advantage. It provides no advantage whatsoever when it comes to faith, salvation, and justification. And he does this by making a chronological argument. That is, Abraham believed God and was declared righteous. That happened in Genesis chapter 15. Well, this was 14 years before God told Abraham 
that he and all the males had to receive the covenant sign of circumcision, right? We don't read about the, the sign of circumcision until Genesis 17, right? That, so over that, that span of two chapters, you've got 14 years has passed. Abraham's already been justified, but now all of a sudden God says, we need to have this covenant sign and seal. And so Paul clearly states that the works of the law, that is circumcision, weren't necessary for justification because Abraham was already justified before God told him to be circumcised. Right? So there's no works of the law related to justification and salvation. Well, now turning to James, we note his argument that works done by faith justly vindicate or demonstrate the truth of that faith. Right? And so, for example, in verse 21, James refers to a point in Abraham's life that's now some 30 years after his being justified by faith in Genesis 15. Right? James refers in verse 21 to the incident of Genesis 22. Right? So Paul... Paul is talking about Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. James is talking about Genesis 15. And then he jumps way ahead to Genesis 22. And of course, Genesis 22 is where uh, the Lord called Abraham to offer up his son Isaac on the altar. And again, in one of the, the more difficult passages of Scripture, after promising Abraham for so long that he would have a son, and that it was through Isaac that would... Uh, that they would, he would, they would become a great nation, and through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That God then tells Abraham to take this very same promised son up to the Mount Moriah and to offer him as a burnt offering. And of course, we read that and we're shocked at God's command. But what did Abraham do? Abraham trusted God. He believed in God's promise. In fact, as we discover then later in, in Hebrews 11, Abraham at the time believed in God's power to raise the dead. And so Abraham wasn't worried about sacrificing his son because he knew that God had the power to raise him from the dead. And so because Abraham believed God, he obeyed God. But just at the time, of course, remember that as Abraham was about to kill Isaac, the Lord intervened, Genesis 22, verse 12, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Right? Now I know. Now, of course, God already knew this. But God was seeking to prove or, or to test Abraham's faith to see if Abraham truly believed in him. And it would have been easy, of course, for Abraham just to, to make an idol out of his son. right? Especially since Abraham had waited so long for the fulfillment of God's promise. But Abraham's faith in God was pure and true. And he demonstrated that faith by obeying God's command. And so James says here in verse 21 that Abraham was justified by works. 
And then he goes on to clarify this in verse 22 saying, Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. Faith. Faith that he already had. He already been justified by. His faith empowered and enabled Abraham's work of obedience. The faith that he had all the way back in Genesis 15 now bears fruit in Genesis 22. And this fruit revealed that Abraham was a good tree. Right? Going back to, to Jesus' imagery that we talked about last time in, in Matthew 7. Right? It's the good tree that bears good fruit. That's exactly what Abraham is doing here. He's bearing good fruit. His faith, his justification happened you know, some 30 years before. And now it's bearing fruit. It's blossomed and brought to fullness. Whereas James says here that his faith was made perfect. And the meaning of perfect, again, is clarified by what James says in verse 23. Because note carefully, just before James quotes from Genesis 15.6, he, he introduces the quote by saying, and the scripture was fulfilled. Now this is significant because it's different actually than what Paul uses to introduce the very same quotation when he quotes from Genesis 15.6 in, in uh, Romans 4.3. Paul says, what does the scripture say? James says, the scripture was fulfilled. So you see, Paul is simply using the verse as a, as a point of reference. Right? What does the scripture say? Here's what it says. But James is using it almost as a prophecy to be fulfilled. See, because this phrase in the scripture was fulfilled is often used to refer to Old Testament passages that have been fulfilled or come to pass. And we see this especially uh, through the, throughout the Gospels in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilling various prophecies. Well, James' use of it here is quite similar. And so basically the way we think about it is that what God said of Abraham back in, in uh, Genesis 15, 6, that he was uh, righteous in God's sight, it actually comes about, it comes about and is proved true by not only Abraham's obedience in this incident, but even in the lifestyle of obedience that he lived throughout his life. And so Paul and James both use Abraham as an example to make their different but complementary points. But they're talking about Abraham at different points in their lives. And that becomes critical to understanding this issue and considering whether James and Paul are at odds with one another. They're not. But James... <clears throat> is not necessarily content with just stopping at Abraham. Right, James goes on to use another illustration, and one that Paul doesn't use. And perhaps the purpose of this is that James still has a practical point to make. Right? He's made this theological point about uh, faith, having a, a faith that produces works, not a faith that, not a, a, a works that secure our faith, but just having a living faith, not a dead faith. 
But then he's got this practical aspect that he's been talking about in the whole chapter here and, and really the whole uh, letter so far. James uses the example of Rahab in verse 25. He says, Likewise was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? So here, of course, James is referring to Joshua chapter 2 in the account of the spies who were sent into Jericho to uh, scope out the city in preparation for the beginning of the conquest of the land of Canaan by, uh, by the Israelites. The two spies sought lodging in the house of Rahab. And Rahab, of course, we know, was a woman of some reputation. Uh, not only was she a prostitute, but she was an innkeeper. And when the leaders of Jericho found out that the Israelite spies had come into the city, they began searching for them. And when they came to Rahab's house, well, she surprised the spies by hiding them on the roof and turning the officials, the Jericho officials away, saying that the spies had already left the city. Now we have to ask ourselves, why would this woman, a resident of this city that was about to be invaded, Why would she give help to the enemy? Friends, it's because she believed that the God of Israel was the one true living God. And we have an account of Rahab's profession of faith in Joshua 2, verses 9 through 11. This is what she says. I know, this is what she's saying, this is her profession of faith to the spies. I know that the Lord has given you the land. That the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Zion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. And then here's her key profession of faith. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Rahab's faith, just like Abraham's, was confirmed and proved true by her works. That is, when she showed kindness to these strangers and hid them away to protect their lives, she was standing behind this profession of faith that she had made. And so Rahab's faith was not alone, but was living and active, and her deeds demonstrated this reality. And so James uses Rahab to make the same point. But again, we wonder, why why Rahab? And we can certainly understand his use of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Israel. He he stands as the, the father of the faithful believers and the members of the covenant community. And certainly to Abraham, the covenant promises were made, even the covenant promises that were ultimately fulfilled in Christ. But why Rahab? He could have used other people in the Old Testament, other uh, faithful believers, other saints. Why Rahab? I mean, not only was she an outsider, but she was a prostitute. She was a woman of ill repute. And so why would James specifically use her as an example of living faith. Well, I believe, and it could very well be, because James is now trying to tie all that he's been saying here in chapter 2 together. 
You see, if someone like Rahab walked into an assembly of God's people, how would they respond? How would we respond? Perhaps they might chase her off and tell her that she's not welcome. And perhaps she'd be ignored and, and they just kind of hope that she would never return. Or perhaps she'd be looked down upon and discriminated against because of her appearance or because of her reputation, just like the poor that James had mentioned back in verses 2 and 3. And so James is saying here, look, here's this woman who was enslaved to sin. And yet she was justified in the very same way that Abraham was. She believed God and it was credited to her as righteousness. Right? And we find further evidence that right? she's also one of the ones mentioned uh, in the book of Hebrews. And the, you know, the heroes of the faith. That she's a sister in Christ. She's a sister in Christ in need. And so would you treat her so shamefully and so unlovingly for her profession that God is one? It's not the same dead profession as the hypocrites of verse 14 that James talks about or even the demons of verse 19. No. Rahab's faith was a living, active faith that showed itself and was vindicated as being true and real when she showed hospitality and kindness to these strangers. And of course we ultimately know as well that she has the great honor of then also being in the line of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. She was showing her faith by her works in the same way that Abraham was when he obeyed God and went and offered up Isaac and was going to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice. And so James links Abraham and Rahab together and sets them forth as examples of what true living faith looks like and how we can vindicate that faith by our obedience to God and by, our love, by loving our neighbors as ourselves and not discriminating against them. Now James summarizes all this with one last illustration and final word on the subject. Verse 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. It's like a, like a drumbeat. Right? To bring emphasis, James again asserts this truth about a living faith. You know, it's the spirit or the soul that gives life to the human body. The body can't survive on its own once the spirit is, is gone. Right, The body is then dead and lifeless. Once our spirit goes, our soul goes, and separated from the body, the body is, is dead. It's, it's useless. It can't do anything. Well, James says in the same way is faith without works. That a faith without works is nothing more than vain, empty words without hope and without life. It's a dead faith. And a dead faith, like a dead body, is useless. And we're challenged then... And if we would call ourselves Christians and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, if we profess and confess the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, then our faith must be a living, breathing faith that acts and does, that serves and loves for God's glory. 
friends, remember, the Apostle Paul is right. right? Our works and our obedience can't earn our salvation. We can't secure our right relationship with God or earn His favor by keeping the law and doing good works as Roman Catholics propose. Nor can we maintain our salvation uh, through our faithfulness in doing good works as the federal, federal visionists assert. Now, if we try either of these, we're going to end up lost and frustrated and without any hope or assurance because our works are insufficient and we will never know if we've done enough. We aren't justified by works of the law, nor is our faith and our salvation maintained by the works of the law that we might do. No, we are justified and our salvation sustained only by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Friends, that is the gospel. God's grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and the work of Christ alone, not us. That's the gospel. So Paul is right on. But James is also right. And James stands side by side with Paul. And if we believe God, and if we have faith in Christ, again, that's great. But our profession of faith can't just be empty words. It must be living and active. It must be accompanied by works. So that we're justified. That is, we're shown to be true believers by our works and not by a faith that is alone, all by itself, without works, which is lifeless and which is very, very, very dead. Beloved of God, truly may the Spirit, the living Christ, graciously apply this challenge to your hearts, even now. That you would have a living faith. Having been justified by faith by God's grace in Jesus Christ. But that, that faith would be a living faith. Bearing great and abundant fruit to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. <clears throat> oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do praise you and thank you for this truth and And we are so mindful again of the importance of this particular message for the church today. And and we know that much of the church just rejects your law and doesn't think that your law applies to them. That that they can, as uh, Paul says in Romans 6, that that we can just continue in sin because we're in grace and grace abounds. And what a wonderful thing that is. And truly, grace does abound and we rejoice and give thanks. But we ought not to continue in in sin. That we ought to live holy and righteous lives in obedience to your commands to show our love, to show our gratitude to you for all that you've done for us in Christ Jesus. And that it's not by our works that we're justified, but that we are called to have living and, and a living and active faith to bear fruit for your glory, to be not only uh, to glorify your name, but it has secondary, tertiary uh, blessings to give us encouragement, to help us in our assurance of faith, and also it serves to be a great witness to others that we truly are your beloved children, and that our hearts and our lives have been changed and transformed 
by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we proclaim. And we pray, Lord, that as we strive to have these, uh, this faith that's living and active, serving those around us, seeking to do good to the glory of God, that many would come to ask us for the reason of the hope that is in us, and that we would have that ready response to declare to them the truth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ has died for their sins, is there to forgive them as they would humble themselves before Him and confess those sins, crying out to Him for forgiveness and mercy and grace. That having that faith is what justifies, but that, that, that faith that justifies is never alone, but is always accompanied by those faithful works done for Your glory and honor and praise. Father, we pray that your spirit would truly impress these great things upon our hearts, drawing us all closer to yourself. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.